1 Samuel chapter 28, and we're starting in verse 1. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Akish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Akish, Very well, you shall see what your servant can do. And Akish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own town. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and and encamped at Shenem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the size of the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, or by Urim, or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two other men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul, the king said to her. Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. And Samuel said, Why do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you... As he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. 
I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose and uh, so he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it, and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. 1 Samuel, chapter 31, page 304 in the Church Bibles. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armour-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armour-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armour-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armour-bearer, and all his men, on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armour and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armour in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. <coughs> But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted for seven days. Now the question I want to start with um, this morning um, is where does it all end up? And um, where does it all end up? And over the last seven or eight weeks, as we've worked our way through the book of 1 Samuel, we've been tracing through what I suppose you might call the Saul experiment. Uh, what, what do I mean by the Saul experiment? Well, you could approach it from two angles. And firstly, you could approach it from the angle of the people. What is the Saul experiment about? It is the Let's try and survive in the world by being a bit more like the world. 
Let's survive a hostile culture by accommodating with the culture. That experiment, where does it end up? Or you could describe it from the angle of Saul himself. It's the, can I lead God's people effectively without really listening to God experiment? Where does that experiment end up? We've had plenty of reason over the last few weeks to notice that 1 Samuel is very relevant to us and relevant to the moment in which we find ourselves. There is a strong temptation to try to lead God's people without thinking that obedience to God and his word really matters. But I hope that even as we've worked our way through 1 Samuel, you have realized that this is not just an out there thing. It's not just a kind of a way up at the top thing. This comes much closer to home. Because really, King Saul in the book of 1 Samuel represents a way of being human. In fact, I'd suggest he represents the normal, the default way of being human, which is to be gifted by God, to be entrusted by God with a task, to be given great responsibility and influence, and then to think that obedience is at best optional and at worst an inconvenience. Well, let me ask the question. How is that going to end? Imagine if you had not a crystal ball, because I think in the light of the passage we just read, that would be inappropriate. But imagine some sort of non-occultically enchanted looking glass, and that you could look into it. um, And that as you looked into it, you could see not just the truth of your action right now, but you could see the full and final consequences, that as you were acting, you could see what it was going to make you and where you were going to land up. Well, what would Saul see back in chapter 13 or chapter 14 or chapter 15 of 1 Samuel if he were to look into that glass? What would we see if we are tempted to follow him and we look into that glass? The answer is 1 Samuel chapter 28. Now, I'm not in the habit of giving trigger warnings before I give a sermon, but here's one. This chapter is unutterably bleak. Um, In fact, together with the other chapter we just had read, chapter 31, it must be one of the bleakest portions of all of Scripture. And when I was preparing for this sermon, I was sat at my kitchen table um, across from Jenny and my wife. I mean, she can testify to the fact that five or six times... Um, As I was working at the passage, I just said, it's so sad. It is so sad. And the reason that 1 Samuel chapter 28 is so bleak is that it shows you where it all ends. Uh, Firstly, it ends without God. The Saul experiment, and all who persistently try it, it ends without God. There's no doubt that Saul is God-forsaken in 1 Samuel chapter 28. That's why the chapter is so wretched. I'm going to unfold it in three phases. First of all, how the chapter begins. And at the start of 1 Samuel 28, Saul has already lost access to God. The Philistines come up against Israel. Saul is terrified. 
Um, And so Saul does what a good king should, and he inquires of the Lord. And you get this chilling line, don't you? Verse 6. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. It's tempting to think that it is going to the witch in 1 Samuel chapter 28 that is the thing that takes Saul past the point of no return. But the truth is that Saul was already past that point. He inquires of the Lord and God has nothing to say. There is no answer. Read out of context, you might think, hang on a second, but that's just a bit harsh. Um, Surely you could be sympathetic with Saul. Why is God not answering him when he needs him now? But of course, Saul has been silencing God for years. Uh, Back in chapter 13 and in chapter 15, he received express commandments from the Lord. And yet he deliberately chose not to obey them. Back in chapter 14, he did something even more extraordinary. We didn't really notice it at the time. But in chapter 14, faced with a decision, Saul sent for the priests so that he could find out the word of God from them. And as the priest was in the process of inquiring for God, Saul turns to him and said, actually, do you know what? Don't worry about it. I don't need to know. And carried on with the course of action anyway. He actually silenced God mid-sentence. And then in chapter 22, He did the most terrible thing of all. Saul, provoked by his jealousy of David, not only disobeyed the word he'd received, not only stopped the priests from inquiring mid-course, but actually slaughtered in cold blood all the priests at Nob. The people who could inquire of God for him, Saul had them all killed. Of course God is silent now, Saul has been saying, shut up to God for years. But if God is no longer speaking, then Saul is without God. Um, Saul can't leave it there, and he's desperate for guidance. And so he, he comes up with the most harebrained um, of harebrained plans. And he decides, even though it's very clear in the Old Testament law that you mustn't consult mediums and necromancers, that God hates it, Saul decides that he's going to get a medium to call Samuel, the prophet of the Lord, up from the dead so that he can find out God's words in this situation from Samuel. It is absolutely mad, although it is kind of Saul down to a T, trying to get a word from God's whilst disobeying the word of God, defying the word of God, to get the word of God. The paragraph that follows is so full of ironies. And here's one. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 28 that we find out for the first time that Saul was the one who had expelled the mediums and the necromancers from the land of, of Israel. In other words, the best, maybe the only really spiritual thing that King Saul had done, we only find out about it at the moment that he's about to undo it. And here is another. And Saul goes to the witch and she's scared that she's going to get in trouble. And so what Saul does is to swear to her by the name of the Lord that she won't get into any trouble for doing these things. 
as though Saul, of all people, had any say over who does and doesn't get in trouble with the lords. And here's another. She goes to a necromancer, literally a a mistress of the ghosts. She goes to a necromancer and swears by the living gods that things will be okay. It is beyond awful. I can't work out which is the most poignant detail in that paragraph that runs from verse 8 to 14. Is it verse 14 um, and the way that Saul identifies Samuel? Um, He can't see him, um, and so the witch has to describe him. um, And Saul identifies Samuel by what he's wearing. He's wearing a robe. Is that the most poignant detail? As Samuel is wearing the robe that he wore the last time that Saul saw him, all the way back in chapter 15, when Samuel said goodbye to him forever. The robe that Saul tore, and Samuel said, yes, that's right, the Lord has torn the kingdom from you. Is that the most poignant detail? Or is it the fact that in verse 12, when Samuel comes up, the witch screams? Why does she scream? I don't know, this is a bit speculative, isn't it? I just wonder if she's not in the habit of being able to call the dead up. In other words, Saul has gone to a hack. He's gone to a hack. And the only reason that his harebrained plan works is because the Lord wants Saul to know that he really does have nothing more to say to him. Where does it all end up? It ends up without God. Uh, Back in chapter 15, Samuel said those awful words in chapter 15 and verse 23. Rebellion is as the sin of divination. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. And back then, you might have thought, is that a bit harsh? I mean, sure, Saul really should have listened. But would you really say that a bit of disobedience, a bit of changing God's words, a bit of breaking God's commandments is the same as divination and idolatry and witchcraft. Well, now, when you get to the end, you see that Samuel was absolutely right. Not because they amount to the same thing. No, it's because this is literally where it ends up. The one who wouldn't listen to God's word back in chapter 15 ends up going to the diviner and the witch in chapter 28. Where does it all end up? Well, it ends here, without God. And then there's the third phase in the chapter where Samuel speaks, verse 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, I'm afraid I can't capture the tone, but I don't imagine he sounded very happy. Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. 
Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also into the hand of the Philistines with you. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. It's such a striking moment. It's striking, first of all, isn't it, that Samuel does actually speak. And I don't think we're given any reasons in the passage to think that this is anyone other than Samuel. I'm dead, though he is. So we live in an anti-supernaturalist age. And so our temptation is to say that when people speak of Ouija boards um, or of ghosts or of tarot um, or of spiritists or mediums or crystal balls, that it is all bunkum. It's all nonsense. And of course, a lot of the time it is. I mean, once you start dabbling with that things, um, there's no end to how deceptive you'll be willing to be. Of course, a lot of it is nonsense. But, but it is worth noting, isn't it? The, the Bible's problem with the occult is not that it is not real. And it is not that it doesn't work. The Bible's problem with the occult is that it is wrong. You should be asking the living God, not trying to manipulate the demonic and the dead. I didn't say this in the last service, but I I probably should say it now. If any of you have been caught up in that in the past, then what you need to know this morning is, number one, that it is wrong, and number two, that the living Lord Jesus has the power to drive away from all of that darkness and to liberate you from the consequences of whatever you have done. Turn to him. That's the first thing that we should say. And that it's striking that she does actually hear from Samuel. But most important is what Samuel says, verse 16. Why then do you ask me? Since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy. The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hands. And given it to your neighbor David's. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Listen, the Lord is your enemy, point one. Point two, you would not listen when you had the chance. Point three. I, therefore, have nothing more to say to you now than I said all of those years back ago, um, ago, back in chapter 15. Well, accept this, that the sword is going to fall tomorrow. This is where it ends, without God. And there is one more scene in the chapter. It's perhaps the most pitiable one of all. Um, Saul falls flat. You know, Saul, who was head and shoulders above the people, prostrate on the floor. Saul obeys the voice of the witch. For just a second, there's a glimmer of hope. Um, The witch tries to press him to eat something, and, and Saul says no. And you might just think in this book, oh, maybe it's a bit like Hannah, where she wouldn't eat at the start because she wanted to seek something from God. But then Saul does what Saul always does and listens to the wrong voices and the witch presses him and he eats. And so Saul almost reaches the end. The one who began his career eating with Samuel, the choice portion at Ramah. 
now reduced to this, having his last meal with a witch. And that is where it ends. I suppose you might say, aren't there two points here? Number one, it ends without God. But also, number two, it ends without the word of God. And of course, that is a big thing in 1 Samuel. Uh, The word of God was rare at the start of the book. And then, in God's incredible grace, he re-emplaced the word of God by raising up Samuel. And so to say that Saul can't hear from God at the end, that is a terrible thing. One of the Old Testament prophets describes how awful it is to imagine a famine of the word of God. That's the picture here, isn't it? Saul eating, but lacking the bread that he really needs. And so you could say there are two points. Saul is without God, and he's without the word of God. Except, of course, that that amounts to the same thing. And this is why disregarding God's word is so terrible and so terribly foolish. To be without God's word is to be without God. If God is no longer speaking to you, then there is nothing of God left. No relationship with him, no blessing, no grace, no hope. If you finally manage to silence God, you lose him. And so this is where it ends, without God's. And it also ends without hope, secondly. Uh, Chapter 28 is hopeless enough, isn't it? And maybe you've had enough already. Um, Saul sentenced to death. Samuel and the Lord against him, um, huddled over his last meal. That is hopeless enough. I think chapter 31, our second reading, is worse. It's, It's awful, isn't it? Saul alone. That double tragedy where wounded by the Philistine Saul not only kills himself and falls on his own sword, but his armor bearer, his poor old armor bearer next to him, follows suit and does the same. The desecration of the bodies, Saul decapitated just as Goliath was uh, back in chapter 17. Saul stripped of his armor and hung from the walls. None of those things are the worst thing about chapter 31, though, are they? Did you spot the worst thing? Uh, We've been working through the book of 1 Samuel in our family Bible times. Um, And there's only one point in the whole of the books of of 1 Samuel, as we've been reading through it morning by morning, where one of my children not only audibly gasped, but corrected what I had just said. And we got to verse 2. 1 Samuel chapter 31 and verse 2. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, And the Philistines struck down Jonathan. Jonathan. Verse 6. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men, on the same day, together. All of them. He took them all with him. He took Jonathan with him. Now, this is the tragedy of Saul. And this is the tragedy of this sort of leadership. Its impact was not limited to Saul. It's sad enough to see the man himself forsaken and lost. 
That is bleak, but it's not just him. The effects are not limited to the sinner. Innocent men, good men, go down with him. And who knows what else the Philistines did that day? A little, it's awful, isn't it? Now, this is where it ends. It ends without hope. Now, it is the starkest of stark warnings. And I'm not sure that we really believe this. A little compromise, um, a little willful disobedience, and that small pragmatic decision um, to silence God's and to do what will play well with the world. Um, Surely it's not that big an issue. Um, Surely it's not so very bad. Um, I once um, spoke to a child who articulated what I think we probably think. Uh, I only lied once or twice or three times. So it's not a big lie. It's not a big lie. And so often in his providence, the Lord saves us from the worst consequences of our actions. We get away with it so much, don't we? That the things that could be the outcome of what we do don't actually happen. And so it feels that way, doesn't it? It's not that big a deal. It's not that bad. But King Saul is here as a looking glass. Let's say that things play out to their logical conclusion. Let's say that you get into the habits of silencing God. Let's say that you come to the conclusion that God's word is not clear, that God did not really say, that we need a new word, a new judgment for a new situation. Where does that end? Where does it end when a Christian disciple or a Christian church like our church or the leadership of a church like the leadership of this church, or a denomination, or a culture, or a nation as a whole. Where does it end when we get into the habit of telling God to shut up? It ends here, without God, and without hope. Heaven help us. Heaven help us. And do you know what? It does. Because the extraordinary truth is that Saul is not the end. Saul is not the end. Now, we didn't have chapters 29 and 30 read for us, um, but the way that the narrator has told this story, he's deliberately held two stories together that actually happened right at the same moment, um, three days in the life of Saul and three days in the life of David that are, in fact, in complete parallel, the same moment. And it's extraordinary what's happening at the same time. So at the very moment that Saul is disguising himself to go and meet the witch, elsewhere, David is chasing down an Amalekite raiding party You know, the Amalekites that King Saul never could deal with. And there's David off dealing with them somewhere else. At the very moment that Saul is seeking to inquire of the Lord and getting no answer, David inquires of him and hears from him. Even as Saul is losing every single one of his people, all dead, all together, 
David saves every single one of his who had taken refuge in him and who he had to deliver. Um, Even as Saul is stripped of his armor with his last possessions taken from him, David sends out a blessing um, to all the places that had aligned with him and the plunder that he had taken. As Saul lies dead on the battlefield, the ultimate dead end for his kingdom, David is making new laws and new statutes that are going to last in Israel. Good laws and merciful statutes. You see, Saul is not the end. Uh, Don't get me wrong. It's the end of the road for Saul. But the Lord has a new king waiting in the wings. I suppose if you want to look in the looking glass properly, you need to look in the looking glass and see the gospel at the same time. You see, God does not... And he will not leave his kingdom to those who will not listen to him. God does not, and he will not leave his kingdom in the hands of the disobedient. The Lord has a man after his own heart. The Lord has put his anointed on the throne. In a picture way, David, really Jesus, the son of God, the one who listens, the one with an ear that has been dug out so that he can listen. He will reign. We said it right through the series, haven't we? And that there is refuge and grace and a future for the discontents, for those who who can't get on board with Saul's program um, in David's. Saul is not the end. Ultimately, the Lord Jesus is. Now, it's important to say that Jesus is not there to smooth a path for those who will not listen. And David is not there to paper over Saul's mistakes. David is there to replace King Saul, not to make everything better again. And so Jesus, he can't be used as a sort of alchemy to turn the dross of our willful disobedience and apostasy and deliberate rebellion against God's words into the gold of a blessing and a future. You can't do that with the name of Jesus. If you have no intention of listening to God, of obeying him, then Jesus will not paper over an apostate heart. But as we come to him, and as we listen to him, And as we take hold of Jesus and his gospel words, he does change the end. Hope, forgiveness, blessing, grace, a future, life with God. Actually, I think in the end, 1 Samuel ends with us and with a choice. And choose your king. And choose... Your, your, temp, your template, um, choose your future. Uh, which ending do you want? Um, Saul, the Saul experiment, or David? King Saul and everything that he represents, or Jesus? Saul's kingdom cannot last, but there is a better king and a gospel kingdom a kingdom full of grace, 
and goodness and beauty and renewal and freedom and life. Which do you want? Now let's give the final word to Samuel. Look, he said, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption as iniquity and idolatry. And so the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, Saul, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your incredible grace in showing us um, the reality of where things end. Lord, we're so sorry for the way that in our hearts we so often follow Saul uh, with this thought that we know better than what you have said, that we would rather come up with our own plans than listen and obey you. Father, we praise you so much um, that in the face of our Saul-like humanity, you have raised up a better man, a better kingdom, the Lord Jesus, and that his kingdom is full of beauty and goodness and grace. And we praise you so much um, that that kingdom is available to everybody who puts their hope in him. Please help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.